This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. And then, you know, Colleen saying, is the pilot okay with this? Because if, yeah. if it wasn't ready, the, right. the risk is huge. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Colonel Julie Callicott to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast. Colonel Callicott joined the Canadian Armed Forces as an armored crewman in 1990. Following training, she was posted to Third Wing um, Bagotville? That's correct. Bagotville. Bagotville. Quick. Where she held a variety of positions supporting fighter and expeditionary operations. Colonel Calicut conducted three operational deployments in Afghanistan. She's held a variety of intelligence positions at the tactical, operational, and strategic levels. As the commanding officer of two air expeditionary squadron, she commanded two deployed airfield activation surge teams, AVASTs, to Romania and to Mali. She held the position of NORAD Deputy Director of Intelligence and has completed a degree at the U.S. Air War College by Deputy Director for Intel at NORAD. It, it was awesome. I can only imagine. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Okay. Yes. <laughs> it, it helps that it's, it's in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and that's just a beautiful place. Totally. totally. I mean, and then the mission there and, and how important that is to the bilateral relationship. is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that it's a binational command mm -hmm. is just a great experience that I think we don't always get exposed to. We do, sure. we do NATO, we do uh, within the Five Eyes relationship, but the uniqueness of that binational command mm -hmm. is is really kind of a fun experience. I got to be honest. Yeah. Amazing. Well, and then Colonel Calicut is also a 2022 fellow with the Halifax International Security Forum's Peace with Women Fellowship. And we are podcasting to you today uh, from the Halifax International Security Forum. So welcome to the podcast. So I'd love to start off uh, after a couple of digressions to get there. <laughs> what drew you into the armed forces, the Canadian armed forces? So that's a, a really interesting question that I, I get a lot. I... I remember being really small, so maybe three years old. And outside my house, we used to live on Highway 60 in northern Ontario. Okay. And there used to be convoys. They used to pass my house. And I guess they were going from more of a southern Ontario mm -hmm. to northern Ontario base. I didn't know that I was three. But uh, mm -hmm. they, used to, they used to take a long, long time for them to go past my house. And I used to stand up on the hill with my dog at attention, saluting as they would go past for hours. Really? And that's it's somewhat of my first memory of that's that's exactly what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I'm going to be a soldier. Wow. It was kind of funny looking back. My dad was in the Air Force prior to my birth, mm -hmm. and my uncle was in the Air Force, cousins, you name it. So it is somewhat of the family business. Mm -hmm. But it was always something I was going to do, and no one was going to ever stop me. And that's all I ever remember wanting to do. That's amazing. It was like you, you were literally born for this okay. career. Exactly. That's amazing. Lines in the blood. <laughs> well, then, uh, what drew you to intelligence specifically? So I actually joined my local reserve unit. I thought everybody did, was in the infantry. 
That was my, I, I, was, I was actually 17 and I thought, oh, okay, well, off I go, it's my time. And so I, I thought everybody was infantry. So I went in and said, uh, well, here I am. They actually didn't have any spots for females at that moment. Okay. I also didn't understand that concept because sure. that was crazy to me. The recruiting officer thought my reaction was kind of funny to that, but that was a unique experience for both of us, I yeah. guess you could say. Sure. Um, what was happening is, was it was just prior to females being allowed into combat roles in Canada. So Okay, so what year was this then? I went in in, in 1989, okay. yeah. and it opened up to females in combat roles in January of 1990. So after a really unique discussion with him, and I'm yeah. I'm a civilian, brand new, walking in, not understanding it, mm -hmm. he was fantastic about it, and he started to process my application because he knew this was coming. Okay. And since it was an armored unit, they only you know they only had so many positions that were not armored. So I mm -hmm. put my application in. They understood it was going on. I didn't so much, but it was great, great fun. And they processed me as uh, as an armored crew and ended up, that's how I joined. Not really knowing what I was getting into, but I, it was okay because I thought everybody was in the infantry. Alas, <laughs> I was not in the infantry. I was, I had joined the armor corps, which was okay. Yep. That was good with me. Uh, and so that's how my career began. Wow. Um, so when I went home and told my dad, hey, I joined the army, his face went white. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he said, oh, my God. He, he told me that I didn't know what I was getting into because I should have joined the Air Force. Okay. And uh, so a whole pot of coffee later, uh, I, I was schooled on what I was getting into. And uh, that was great fun. Yeah. But so that's how I came to be in the military overall. So I spent 10 years in the Army. Army mm -hmm. Reserve, which put me essentially put me through through university because mm -hmm. uh, that was a job for me while I went for university, and then I just became, of course, addicted to the Army habits and decided mm -hmm. I should switch to the Reg Force. And when I switched to the Reg Force, I went from the Army Corps to intelligence, okay, which was just really perfect for my interests. Yeah, interested in national security, interested in politics, interested in history, and that and that sort of fit with you know sort of my passions. Ended up uh, switching to the Air Force and intelligence. What was that shift like going from Army to Air Force? So it was like a bit of a shock uh, for yeah. me and probably the poor pilots that ended up with me, i got to be honest. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, it was great, actually. So that's how I ended up in, in Bagotville working with fighters. Mm -hmm. And in my brain, I thought, okay, well, they're just tanks in the sky and I can do this. <laughs> This yeah. should be no problem at all. And, uh, but it really, you know, no matter what I had been exposed to up to that point, had prepared me for sort of the fighter pilot, go, go, let's get it done mm -hmm. uh, attitude. So I, I just really love sort of the subculture of the fighter force. Amazing. Yeah. So, so if we could turn to the decision that we were going to talk about today. Mm -hmm. uh, so... You were the task force commander for the Canadian Airfield Opening Team in Mali. So w when was this? What, what was happening at the time and why, for our listeners, why was Canada in Mali? So um, I was very fortunate as an intelligence officer to be put into sort of an operational command position of two air expeditionary squadron, which is great. Not yeah. necessarily the normal sort of path. 
So that's what got me the task force commander position of an AFAST, uh, Airfield Activation Search Team, an AFAST. And, and those teams go into locations in the middle of nowhere, yeah? Yes. So we could go end up going into like an airfield that's more austere and, mm-hmm. and sort of set everything up so that the, the task force commander and the air platforms then come in and use that airfield, or it could be more of an airfield that's prepared, and we, we sort of work with whatever's there, get that airfield prepared so when the air assets come in, mm-hmm. and the next task force commander of that, whatever air platforms that is in that team, then they come in, they take over, and we leave again. Okay. So we sort of come in and get it prepared, and then we go. So we're mm-hmm. on deck to surge really quickly within the first few days is much as we can, no sleep, and get it ready. And then we either, elements of us stay, Mm -hmm. or we all stay, but usually we surge, get it prepared, hand it over, and we leave. So that's sort of, that was our job. And how how much notice do you normally get for those kinds of missions? Are they planned, or are they just sort of like crisis, or is it... It can be be a bit of both. For For the Mali mission specifically... We were a bit up and down. Depends on when the government makes the decision, how quickly we get the team ready to go, that type of thing. For this one, we were actually up and down for a few months to get the team ready. Again, what year was this? this Twenty eight. You're right. Summer 2018. Okay. So you asked Canada's mission. Yeah. So the mission in Mali was to be the medical evac. So the helicopters had the role for medical evac uh, as part of MINUSMA, the MINUSMA mission in Gao, Mali. And MINUSMA, I'm trying to remember what that that acronym stands for. It was the United Nations Stabilization Mission. We don't have the whole acronym proper there, but that's essentially what it was. So we had sent two Chinooks and I think it was four Griffins, mm-hmm. um, because when the Chinook's up, a Griffin flies with it. So you are there in Mali. Canada is establishing its mission, medical, medic- evac. medical evac. And 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 by the way, like for our listeners, that's such a critically important mission um, to be able to... Operations don't work without the evac plan and being able to get our forces in and out as quickly as possible, especially if you get somebody medical attention within that first hour, you can have a much greater chance of being able to save their lives, if even if with like catastrophic injuries. Exactly, especially in Mali because the terrain was so spread out and so austere. I guess yeah. you could say the the Germans had um, a long range recce patrol uh, okay. role. Mm-hmm. So they would go out with long convoys uh, with a lot of different countries and go out and do like long range reconnaissance, yeah. you could say. And so it was really important that if they w- went out, mm-hmm. that they had a medical evac right. capability in the event of an injury. So that was why it was so important, especially to the Germans, the Dutch, that the Canadians were there to do that medical evac role. And were there any other partners with you or is it? Yes. So it was primarily uh, the Germans with that role that we worked with. And they also were the, I guess you'd say the owners of the base on that side. And the French were there with their own mission, which was up Arcane. They also were the... uh, the managers of the airfield. Right. Okay. And, and then the French were. The, the French were. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then there was the UN camp, which was on the other side. So, so you are, you know, there, you're setting up this, this, this capability on the ground in Mali. And, but you made a decision, but to 
land a C-17, which is a not insignificant size it's, aircraft. It's a big aircraft. Yeah, it's, it's a big it's, aircraft. She's, she's a big girl. Yeah. <laughs> I'll explain a little bit about some of the challenges initially we had. So we we had some unique challenges in getting getting the aircraft, which is the Chinooks and the helicopters, yeah. over to Gao because it's 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 a distance from Canada. Yeah. So we had to, um, you know, it's easiest to take them apart, put them in a C-17, and fly them that distance. Sure. One of the biggest challenges we had was the Gao runway uh, was not long enough oh. uh, to land a C-17 there. So to bring over the pounds of equipment that includes, um, you know, not just people's equipment, but it includes um, everything you need on, on an airfield, airfield yeah. from forklifts and pallets mm-hmm. of equipment to the helicopters itself to the equipment mm-hmm. you would need to move anything around. Fly all that in with the uh, CC-130s because there was a massive project ongoing that was put together by the UN and ICAO, a huge project, to rebuild the GAO runway. This had been going on since 2016, so a massive project to to rebuild the runway in GAO. What was happening is it was almost completed, but it was not completed yet to the point that it had been certified, that the asphalt was solid, that we could land a plane on it, that mm-hmm. the uh, painting was done so that the aircraft that was landing knew, knew where to go, where to go, all <laughs> right. of those things. So there was a temporary runway beside it that was mm-hmm. a gravel runway, which is perfect for a CC-130 to land, yeah. and that's how we were getting our equipment in mm-hmm. along with everyone else. Unfortunately, to get our aircraft in, we needed a C-17 to land, or... We had flown our aircraft into uh, Burkina Faso. Okay. And they were yeah. going to have to put it together there and fly it into Gao. Okay. And how long of a flight would that have been? Like four hours, okay. I believe. Just, which is a significant flight for a helicopter. It is. And there's a lot of weather factors that play yeah. into that the heat and yeah. distance, yeah. fuel, all that. And so we really did want to put pressure on this project mm-hmm. to say, can we get the, the airfield that's ready? Mm-hmm. So we think certified yeah. because that will enable us to start the C-17 flights so that we can meet our initial operating capability by the 4th of August, yeah. which was what we wanted. So there was a, a lot of pressure, you could say, to force everyone to the table, whether it's the UN or the certification authority, the French, the Germans, the Dutch, the Malians, right. everyone yeah. to say, we need to certify the runway, and we have to do it in the next like week. We need the C-17. We have a lot of pressure. It's a lot safer for us to fly things in on the C-17 yeah. than to force the build in, in Burkina Faso and yeah. have them fly over. I really wanted the C-17 to come versus pushing the flights from Burkina Faso. So as the clock was ticking mm-hmm. and everything else is going on, I was really pushing everyone to the table mm-hmm. beyond their comfort space, <laughs> you could say. Sure. To get this approved. Yeah. And there were so many people in the approval loop. It had to mm-hmm. be the French. It had to be the UN. 
uh, it had to be the approval authority, so ICAO. It had to be our engineers as well on the Canadian side because it was going to be Canadian. I had to have the transportation debt Mm -hmm. commander included and all the way up the Air Force chain because it's their authority. It's not mine, Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day, I'm the one as well running around taking a lot of risk as well to push all of these people yeah look into their face and say this is the option that we need to push for and then you know calling saying is the pilot okay with this because if if it wasn't ready the the risk is huge right Uh, we could have wrecked the airstrip (laughs) right right so the plane so did you get everybody to agree or was it like we did and the, there is the added pressure that I'm, I'm an intelligence officer. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a pilot. I'm not an engineer. So there, there's a lot of pressure on that as well. Right? Yeah, sure. And so I have to, I definitely had to double check, triple check, quadruple check mm-hmm. with everyone to make sure, am I pressuring everybody in the wrong direction? Am I taking this decision that's not within my authority to take? And the last thing I would ever want to do is risk someone's life, you know, without you know, the proper authority or risk emission. So at the end of the day, I put pressure on everyone. Uh, I remember calling back to our airfield engineer in Canada, that, uh, who's a good, good friend of mine. And I, I can almost feel everyone around the table <laughs> with the speakerphone, the one phone that's working. And I'm, I'm giving them all the details and I'm just going a mile a minute and I can hear them. Julie, I'm going to stop you there. i stop you there. I don't need all the details. The runway is fine. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't stop laughing because I thought, oh, John, you know me so well. Yeah. Right? Oh, my God. You know, I remember calling the detachment commander and I said, are, are you sure? And he said, yeah, Jules is fine. <laughs> We're going to land. And I said, is the pilot okay? He said, yeah, he's good. And I'm thinking, what an act of courage, really, wow. because... We needed this. Yeah. That you know, force, it's, I mean, the forcing function, you know, some yeah. like just get like that move because otherwise it might have languished for another year or two yeah. given the way bureaucracies go. So it was a beautiful day and, you know, we're all pressed up against the fence and everybody's there just to, to watch this plane land. Mm-hmm. And and it was, it was beautiful just to watch that thing land. Everybody's mm-hmm. cheering. The Spanish plane comes in and, and sort of does a tail move to wave. <laughs> Uh, happiness so in the end it was a big success and, yeah. and planes started landing and I think we saved a lot of work for everyone and I think in the end it turned out to be a lot safer yeah. for the team that was coming in. Thinking it through you know the way you, you had to balance the risks, the risks of Burkina Faso because I mean, that, that would not have been without risk to not not just in terms of assembling the equipment but also flying it from point a to point b versus the c-17 like that's an extraordinary thing to weigh and we did have the team there was getting sick yeah uh, so we wanted to get them out of there so there was always you know a lot of factors kind of weighing on all the decisions but you know in the end it wasn't all my decision it was a matter of getting the feedback making sure that a Double check the sanity mm-hmm. in the decision all, sure, all, all sure. time. <laughs> and always had that, you know, again, I go back to John. Julie, I'm going to stop you. We got this. So I guess you're looking back on that experience and the way you handled 
the decision taking and execution. Do you feel that your being a woman impacted how that played out? Or, you know, if so, why? And if not, why not? You know, I think about I, after this fellowship, I got to be honest, yeah. I've I've sort of thought about that a lot more uh, yeah. over the last three weeks. I think I can't turn away from the fact that being a woman does influence my decision making. There's okay. at least sixty uh, percent is just Julie, but I think that there is an aspect of being a mother that comes into that, mm-hmm. caring about people, but also knowing that if I don't take certain risks that I won't be able to protect people either. If I don't push people beyond what they think they can do, but also balance that with some some checks and balances, that that we we won't be able to do what we have to do. And I, I think that part of that might be mothering, if you will. Mm-hmm. Part of that might just be me. But I don't think I personally can separate being a woman sure. uh, from being Julie. Mm-hmm. And so I think that it, that's just a factor of being me. Well, and, and, and we are, there, there's so much to us and, and sort of disaggregating the gendered component to it. Sometimes it's difficult, but what I have noticed in a number of these other conversations that we've had is the creating bridges and going around and, and, and inclusive consultations in decision-making tends to be a theme that we hear on on this podcast, which is quite interesting. That, that's a, definitely an interesting aspect. I guess maybe in the way that I lead is mm-hmm. I'll, I'm open to, you have to check me. Yeah. I know that about myself. Yeah. And so I'm open to that. Right. Please make sure you say something. Or I can read it in your face that you have mm-hmm. something to say. Right. And, um, no, I've had male leaders that I can see that into. Mm-hmm. So is it an aspect of gender... I don't know. Just or leadership styles. But I can definitely say that I've made different decisions because of my gender, I think. Mm-hmm. But they're mixed in there. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And for, you know, logistics wins wars, right? Yes. And so thank you for walking us through some of the, these complex logistics in an austere country in Africa. Well, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pre- yeah. pleasure to be here and do this. Yeah. Thank you so much. What a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time.